Okay, Parashat Teruma on page 154. Parashat Teruma begins several parashot which will be dedicated to the uh, commandment with regards to building the Mishkan and then the description of actually building the Mishkan. It's, it's been said, and I can definitely affirm it, um, rabbis or teachers uh, get their due pay if they teach these parashot. They're not simple to teach, uh, both because of the details, as well as finding a significant relevant meaning within them. Beatrice has always gotten me off the hook on this. She always asked that we learn Megillat Esther. So yeah. we haven't even, in the uh, since we've been doing these classes, we haven't really learned Teruma all that much. It's a little hard to do this year because there's a Shana Meoberet. It's a, it's a leap year, so Purim is a lot later. Uh, this is the year the rabbis really need to... Uh, uh, so that's possible. So maybe I did it once anyway. Or maybe I did the menorah later on. And how... Anyway, so uh, just to give you the structure of what's to come, parashat terumah and tetzaveh are kind of one unit. And then there's a parashat in the middle, it's called parashat kitisa. And then vayakel and pikudeh, which are the final parashat, are another unit. And the reason I call those units is because terumah and tetzaveh is the instruction with regards to build the mikdash, the mishkan, as such. Make certain that you fill it with these utensils. Parashat Tetzaveh includes the clothing of the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol, and some other of the utensils. And then Parashat Kitisa has a little bit more, but mostly focuses on, for our purposes, Heta Egel, the sin of the golden calf, and then Vayakil and Pikudeh are the actual construction. It's when Moshe and Betzalel actually go ahead and do it. Never, never too late. Uh, I go ahead and, uh, and, and actually build the Mishkan. Uh, so uh, really it's Teruman Tetzaveh instruction, Vayakil and Pikudeh construction, and in the middle, well, Heta Egel. There is a question, I should mention as well, as to when all this takes place. In other words, does it take place after the sin of Heta Egel or beforehand? Um, chronologically, if you read the Torah, as I just mentioned, it sounds like before. Teruman Tetzaveh come before the description of Heta Egel. Uh, that's Ramban Nachmani, who generally speaking does read things chronologically in the Torah to the best of his ability. He maintains that way. Rashi has it all taking place afterwards. For Rashi, oh, now we're getting started. Rashi, it all happens after Heta Egel. It's, so to speak, a, uh, an atonement. It's a kapara for Heta Egel, the Mishkan, and the sacrifices that will take place in it. I'd like to, for today, read it and accept it the way it's presented in the Torah in a chronological fashion. It's not discrediting Rashi. It's just saying, well, how does the Torah present this to us, even if it happened, quote-unquote, differently than it appears? Let's see the message that the Torah might reveal to us. That's the uh, background. The second note uh, in Parashat Terumah is that, uh, for us, is that I'd like to continue a theme that we've kind of discussed in the past two weeks. And if you had, weren't a present or didn't listen, it's not to be a problem, won't be a problem at all. Um, but I'd like to, if you keep in mind, if you did, if you were here or you listen, it'll hopefully enrich that sort of message and description of what's been taking place in the lives of each of the members of Am Yisrael, its relevancy to us as well, in a very significant way. Tirumah, I think, and Tetzaveh, Vayakil, and Pikudeh continue that. All right, those are my introductions. So page 154. Page 154 starts the instruction for the Mishkan. 
It's also last introduction. Teruma is very near and dear to my heart. It's my bar mitzvah parasha. It's my oldest son's bar mitzvah parasha. So I don't know, we have we, we like parasha teruma. Uh, so uh, Beatrice, you may have taken it away from me, but not so long. Vaidaber Adonai Moshe lemor. Parasha begins with a command of God to Moshe. Daber Adonai Selvi Kholi Teruma Meet Kol Ish Ashi Devenu Libolik Tikhoet Terumati. This is going to be a man-constructed uh, sanctuary. Uh, it's um, talk to any person. Any man specifically, libo, who, uh, out of the goodness of their heart, who willingly wants to give. What is this tiruma? What's this donation consisted of? What sort of fabrics? What sort of utensils? What sort of metals are necessary for the Mishkan? Vizota tiruma itam. And the Torah, and we'll read it quickly, goes on to detail uh, some 13 different things which were donated and in turn used in the Mishkan. Zahav hoshet, gold and silver and copper. Utchelet v'argaman v'tolat shani v'shesh v'izim, those are dyes which were donated together with the wool. That's techelet is a blue dye, argaman is a purple dye, and so forth. V'orot elim odamim, and then there were... Um, Skins or hides that were colored or dyed red. We even get to the description of this acacia wood as Shemen Lamaor. There was donation of of um, of oils. There were spices. Uh, precious uh, jewels and, and stones. That's the description. It's very descriptive. It's very in your face. You can't read the first few verses of the parasha without, at least in my opinion, visualizing it. You have to be able to, it, there's no pause. It's, it's one thing after the next. It doesn't just say gold and silver and copper. It says gold and silver and copper and these dyes and uh, oil and uh, spices, etc. 13 things, one after another in quick succession. In my feeling, at least at the onset of the parasha, I just, I can't help but visualizing it. And I think that's the purpose. The truth is, to bring a little Megillat there into it, the beginning of Megillat Esther, much as the end, but really the beginning we'll focus on, is the ostentatious, in-your-face party of Ahasuerus, Behar Oto, as he's showing his greatness. And Yikar, Tiferet Gedulato. And what is the description? Same types of stuff, the gold and the silver and this and techelet and the argaman, these dyes and these colors, which were colors that well, only the monarchy had and the gold and silver, etc. It's very much a description of this is what you see. Uh, the Mishkan then seems, at least to me in the initial presentation of it, as if it's uh, supposed to catch your eye. Now that's not to say if you were outside it would catch your eye. Sounds holy sounds grand. I think it's more than ornate. It's grand. I don't. I to be honest, I don't even see holiness yet. I see grand. I see monarchy. True. So it's significant, but the description afterwards is in your face. Is these are wonderful questions. Wonderful. I mean, the short answer is that the desert uh, which they traversed need not have been the desert that you and I imagine. It didn't necessarily mean there were no people around them. Uh, keep in mind, they passed through different civilized areas. Keep in mind, it wasn't such a long distance from Egypt to Israel, and there were Surah, there was Midian nearby, there was Moab nearby, there, there, there were, there was Sihon, there, there were different places nearby. It's not so crazy to suggest that they got it from there, number one. Number two, 
they may have left with a lot. They really may have left with a lot. Listen, the Midrashim struggle with it. Where did they get the wood specifically with? But according to the Midrash, Yaakov planted it, but they carried it out with them. In other words, right, but they carry out with them. So I, I'm not 100% certain, and Torah is not interested in us uh, even wondering it. But, you know. We, other than to build this, why else would they have? Like, why would they trade for that stuff? Um, it was a commandment. I'm, I'm not, again, you left your slave habitat. You're on your way for what you want to bring you want to bring wealth with you uh, maybe to trade and build homes there i mean they came out it's possible they came out with the king's uh, uh, stash from egypt not certain uh, better question that i have than anyone has a good answer to but but that's what i think is described for us at the onset there's a lot in your face and if you pause and take a step back and think if we can think together if we remember or even if we were present what happened in the past two weeks parashot specifically two weeks ago another in your face spectacle and that was ma'amad har sinai ma'amad har sinai was all the torah seemed to describe about the vision about what the people saw to the extent that and we focused on this pasuk chol ha'am ro'im et ha'kolot that Mysterious Pasuk says they saw sounds. There was so much in that experience which was explicit, which was right in their face. It was overwhelming. And that's what you're describing. There was death in the rabbi's eyes because it was overwhelming because there was some... And in truth, Ramban, in his commentary to the Torah, suggests that the Mishkan was a miniature Ma'amad Har Sinai. In other words, he details a lot of similar linguistic uh, phrases where the Torah uses similar words to what happened at Har Sinai. I always say the easiest is that uh, we're going to read either together or, or on Shabbat that there was this Aron, which may have been the center to a certain extent of the Mishkan, and in it there was the Edut. The Edut is a reference to the Luhot. The Luhot, of course, were received at Har Sinai. They were testifying, that's Edut, testimony to Har Sinai, to God's revelation. The Mishkan seemed to have been this miniature reenactment of Har Sinai. There were three Oh, that's a good question. Give me a second. Um, there were three segments where people could enter into, much as there was at Har Sinai. There was a kol, that sound, mysterious sound of God, which came forth in the Mishkan, which you had at Har Sinai. Why? First and foremost, not so hard to wrap your head around. I had an amazing experience a few years ago. I'm just craving that I return to it. But I'll never have it. You know what I can have? I can be silly, I think, and just video the whole thing instead of actually experiencing it and then watch it again afterwards. It's not going to be the same. Or I could have the same experience and reenact it. So I had this amazing experience, which was... You don't think so? What do you mean? They were scared. They died and came back. Is that bad? No, they were scared. They were scared, and in Devarim, the recollection is, and even a little bit in Yitro, that God says, that's fantastic. Miyitin, their awesome feeling in this moment, being struck by fear, being filled with tremors, I couldn't find better. They felt my presence. I don't know that there was anything negative about that. We certainly remember as a nation, Ma'amad Har Sinai, as being a very significant moment of 
eye-opening attachment to God. Now, this was a miniature of that. I had an amazing experience. I want to be able to tap into that in the future. So much so, Ramban writes, that at the top of Har Sinai, we read these Pesukim last week, at the end of Parashat Mishpadim, there was this fire, Esh Ochelet, at the top of the mountain, this consuming fire. How is that reenacted in the Mishkan? So I know we say, in general, well, maybe that's on top of the Aron, we have Esh Tamid. The suggestion of Ramban is the gold. He says the gold which was manifested throughout the Mishkan was to bring to the people's eyes what they experienced at Har Sinai, fire and lots of fire. And the Pesukim later again in Devarim Vayat Hanan have a lot of fire there. The Mishkan then, my suggestion in reading this, was Ma'amad Har Sinai in full force, a little bit smaller, uh, no sounds. Uh, no uh, theatrics, nobody even proverbially uh, passing out, um, but uh, that, that's what the Mishkan is. Um, so much so, listen to the next pasuk, If you construct for me this Mikdash, this Mishkan, I will dwell, says God, in your midst. It's a beautiful speech, I'll dwell in each one of your midst, but the simple, simple interpretation of the pasuk is, Construct from me this Mishkan, which will be at the center of your camp, and I'll be a part of you. You'll all be able to turn to me. You'll feel me. You'll experience me in your life because you'll all have a glimpse again of Har Sinai. Every time you see me, every time you see the Mishkan and feel it and experience the awesomeness of it, I will dwell in your midst. I think that's the. I think that's just the first what eight pesukim of the parasha in your face spectacle vision, feel God through that. I, I would suggest that's what happened. Now, if you recall, we have in past weeks noticed and discussed how sight is not always healthy. And that at Har Sinai, and we'll return to that in a moment or two, it was not a very healthy experience. Before we read, before we talk about that further, I want to just contrast this description of what the Mishkan is supposed to be, in quotation marks, with what the Mishkan was. And then to return to, well, why did something potentially change? So I want to turn to literally the last several Pesukim and Sefer Shemot, to page 250. In a nutshell, in a sentence, the Mishkan was a vision experience of feeling God. And you entered in, you even knew what was going on there, v'shachanti betocham, you felt God's presence. Page 250. When all is said and done, Vayakel and Pikudei are finished, that Mishkan has been constructed, Shemot, Perek Mem, the last five Pesukim. Pasuk Lamedalet. Vayichas he'anan et ohel mo'ed. What happened? A cloud covers the Mishkan. Not the way I thought this was going to happen. I thought we were going to be struck by the gold. I thought we would see the fire. I thought we'd experience the grandeur, the grandness of this Mishkan. Uchvod Adonai Maleta Mishkan. And the glory of God filled the Mishkan. One second, that's not the way I thought it was gonna. I thought it was gonna say Uchvod Adonai Maleta Mahane. God's grandeur, his glory is spread outward. Wasn't that what we just read? Vishachanti Betocham, build it for me. And my glory will be felt everywhere. You'll look at the Mishkan, you'll feel it, and you'll experience me everywhere. That's not what it says. It says, Which means to say, when you entered in, well, yeah, then you experienced it. Outside, uh, some sort of uh, enduring um, uh, experience, not so much so. It was filled in the Mishkan. 
ולא יכול משה לבוא אל אוהל מועד, כי שכן עליו הענן. And משה couldn't enter into the Mishkan because there was a cloud hovering above or blocking his entrance. It was so obscured in terms of sight, in terms of ability to enter, that Moshe isn't going, Uchvod Adonai, again, Malet HaMishkan. A second time you told me. It's almost as if I'm making a point. God's honor, his glory filled, I wanted to say, the people. I wanted to say the encampment, the Mahaneh. What it says, it says the And when the cloud would go up, we would travel. If it didn't, the Pasuk said, so then we would wait. During the day, there was an anan, a cloud on the Mishkan. At night, there was a fire. There was a bowl of fire or a pillar of fire. That's what would lead us in our travel. But not what I was expecting. I was expecting some sort of vision experience. I was expecting, and everyone came in and beheld. And Moshe walked into the eyes of it. Not what happened. What changed? Why did the purpose of the Mishkan, as described to us in Shemot Perekafe, in Parashat Tenumah, as a place where you're going to see, where you're going to, where you're going to reenact Mahar Sinai, turn into... This more modest, uh, covered place. This is where we accept it. Now we have to rely on accepting my rules, but now with me, I agree full-heartedly. I never thought I'd say that. I agree full-heartedly <laughs> to that, um, and I even want to deepen it. I, I, want, I want to deepen what you said. In other words, I, this is... Um, the beginning of, let's call it, a healthy relationship with God. And I think that if we read the parashot carefully, on one side, on the other, taking into account now what happens in the middle, Mary needed you for this week, the hetaegel in the middle, it might help us truly appreciate this. And what I mean by that is, think for a moment before we read it inside about what happened to precipitate, to bring about Chaita Egel. Moshe is absent. The people don't see. The experience of Har Sinai is over. The theatrics have ceased. The people panic. What are they panicking about? They're panicking about the fact that everything was always revealed in terms of this relationship. This relationship, ironically, lacked depth. I got all the answers immediately. I was always given everything that I wanted. I never was searching. I was spoon-fed the reality. I never had to deal with absence. I never had to deal with darkness. I never had to deal with doubt. I never had a mystery. I never had... That's, that's panic. That's, that's a cause for me losing it. That's what happens to the people at that time. Uh, listen for a moment. We'll even read some of it together. It's the complete opposite that it's the darkest part where we're so far removed. In terms of... Right, but... It's completely far removed. But on the other hand, as life in our own experiences gets darker... Ironically, or maybe not so, oftentimes we get closer in our feeling and relationship with God. Is that not so? These people, the people in this community now, the Jewish world, I think, is very different than 
these people were like spoiled little kids. I hear, but I I hear what you're saying, but I'll say on the other hand, to to make it relevant to today, when we get, and it happens, maybe not really recent, but when we get complacent in terms of our, uh, call it, connectedness to God, it oftentimes takes a jolt for us to realize, like, you weren't that close all along, you lacked a certain depth. Right. So, so on, on page... God came to them and showed them all the miracles and came and said, let me take you out and you can come be my people and let me take care of you and let me take you too. For sure. For sure. They became dependent on him. So much so that at the end of Yitro, if you recall, we even read these. No, no, you're doing great. No, you're saying it all. It's great. On page 122, quickly reading that again, Page one twenty two described the Haam Ro'im Remember, they see the the sounds. It's all a sight thing. What was the reaction? They're jolted backward. Why overwhelming? Too much. Not what we signed up for. We They turned to Moshe and said, instead of sight. We want to listen. We want to, ironically, be a little detached. I can leave for a moment, for a split second, God out of this. In relationships with others, not even with our spouses, but with our spouses as well. In relationship with others, the more we, it's not about not being open, but the more that we are able to maintain who we are without fully exposing it, without fully revealing it to the other, sometimes the healthier the relationship. In other words, you don't need to know everything about me. When you know everything or believe you know everything about me, this relationship becomes a stale relationship. I want instead there to be some mystery. I want there to be some guessing. I want, not because I don't like you, not because I'm not a part of this, but that's by definition in a relationship. It's what keeps it exciting. It's what gives it a certain growth orientation. So anyway, in, in Heta Ego, which happens in the middle of all this, the command to construct the Mishkan, a description at the beginning of Parashat, Teruma, our Parashat, about it all being revealed. So much so, by the way, that the wording afterwards of God to Moshe is, the words of God to Moshe, see as you saw on the mountain. And there's a lot of sight, which makes a lot of sense. That was the Mishkan, a reenactment of Har Sinai. But then the people in between instruction and completion, the way the Torah describes it to us on page 202 in Parashat Kitisa, can't handle absence. If a baby is used to constantly having its food and it's taken away, they panic for good reason. They don't know what it means to not have it easy access and immediate. Vayiten el Moshe on page 222 at the end of Perek Lamed Aleph. God hands Moshe the Luchot. The people see that Moshe is, let's call it, late in coming down from the mountain. They turn to Aaron and say to him, they turn to this is this is in two weeks from now. Uh, they complain and they say we don't know what happened to Moshe 
construct for us a something. Construct for us a leader. Aharon tells them what to do. Listen to what they say after they after this egel is, is constructed, after this golden calf is brought forth in Pasuk Dalit, the people say, and it was necessary for the Torah to tell us what they say then. These are, or this is, which means they are pointing. They are saying, this is, they're not just bowing. They're not just dancing. They're not just reveling over the construction of the Egel. The Torah says they are pointing. They missed the ability to point. They missed the ability to see it. They didn't have access to the information immediately and right in front of us. That's cause for panic. And, uh, you know, what's that? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. At this time, uh, it's not clear. It's horrible to say. I don't blame the people. I think that it was a little bit immature. Not immature, but... I don't want to say that God did something wrong. But how about this? How about this? It's not appropriate to take Moshe away from these people that came out of Egypt, relied on him, needed him for 40 days. But didn't they need this this experience in terms of appreciating and understanding what a relationship is? Wasn't this... They know he's coming back in 40 days. They miscount. Something happens. Something goes wrong and they panic. They miscounted by one day and they went to that extreme. That means that they were really super reliant on Moshe. So they needed a jarring experience to make them realize how they need a certain sensitivity. Had they not had this experience... We see what you're saying. That Mishkan is going to be there as a reminder that here is something for you to see and for you to point and for you to feel that God is here with you. And that is always, not only... That's what the Mishkan was going to be. What the mis- we, we read what the instruction was. But then we read also what actually happened. What actually happened? There was a cloud which hovered above. There was a Moshe who, uh, who couldn't even enter into it. We don't know that many people had access. As a matter of fact, no, Parashat... They needed, they need, sometimes we need traumatic, semi-traumatic experiences to awaken to the reality. We need uh, even, even this experience, which you said you don't necessarily blame them. Uh, That's the example I give all the time. But uh, your children, your child is reaching the age, puberty and a little bit beyond. And all of a sudden you found out that they broke out of the house in the middle of the night, not to mess around, do something terrible, but in a way that you weren't aware and you weren't comfortable with. Uh, so you're going to punish them. Not deep down, deep, deep down, there's not a little bit of, well, you know, kind of happy. They broke out and they built a certain independence. They didn't do anything dangerous. They didn't do anything stupid. I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to they did something different than living in the house in a way where they were supported by you and just abiding by your command. They broke out of it and built a certain independence and then coming back. There is in that moment a certain gratitude from the parent in saying, this is a child 
who's breaking into and finding themselves through sometimes an infraction. So in this moment, certainly, they are wrong. It's a setup from God? Absolutely. They are then going to learn the lesson from it. We have those experiences in life where it's almost necessary for us to fall in order so that we learn that lesson. Maybe not the best example of breaking out of the house, but it is an example, again, to say that there is a necessary fall in order for us to grow. And I'm not certain. There was... Yes, uh, not as much as Haytameragelim. Um, and uh, in other words, I there's not... I understand the pairing, but yeah, and, and, and to come with your example, yeah, the only person that really passed that test was Moshe, because he prayed for his children not to die and be wiped out. So that parent in that case... Is, let me ask you a question instead like this. Are the people barred entrance to Canaan because of this sin? No. Certainly not. No, Only no. Heta Miragelim. Heta Egel is a tragedy. No. Heta Egel is a bad one. Okay. But the point is, Heta Egel was not a sin or experience for which they were held accountable to the extent that it, tra- it changed the trajectory. According, uh, uh, no, you're confusing it. Anyway, regardless, the, the, so the Pesukim described then that, that the people uh, react in such a fashion. What is the reaction to Heta Egel? So we mentioned already the future of the Mishkan is, is different. Future of the Mishkan is more concealed, less revealed. Even in Parashat Kitisa, if you read carefully enough, you begin to feel that already. Uh, for example, if you go to, again, God is angered, as the Pesukim describe it, and Moshe is looking for a way to get them forgiveness. If you go to page 212, there's a very uh, weird, very surprising description of something Moshe does. In the middle of page 212, in Perek that's it. Moshe takes his tent. We don't have a Mishkan yet. He moves it from the center of the camp to the outskirts of the camp. He calls it Ohel Moed, the tent of encounter. Anyone who was seeking God needed to walk out of the camp and find him in that oil. Do you follow what happened? From being in the middle, from being focal, from being realized by everyone immediately, Ohel Moed is removed. That's a terrible thing. We're looking to repair this relationship. Why are you moving away from us? Unless, again, it's a description of almost a hide-and-seek type of game that's necessary in our relationship with one another and certainly with God. It's a concealment which oftentimes brings forth a depth to our relationship. If everything was... I've given this example a hundred times as well, but the passion that we have to help others is oftentimes because we don't have all the answers. Remember this one? The Gemara says that in this occasion, Moshe turns to God and says to him, tell me your ways. And God says, you can't know my ways. And the Gemara says this was a moment where Moshe was asking God, why is Sadiq Veralo and Rasha Vetovlo? Why is it that some people who are righteous have negative uh, reactions, negative 
lives, and those who are wicked have good lives. And uh, the response of God is, I, I, I can't answer that question. I, you, you'll never know. What's the upshot of that? How do you explain that? So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a full book on this, and many preceded him in suggesting this approach, and it goes as follows. If you and I were to know God's plan, if you and I knew why everything that happens to each person happens to them, you know what we would do? We'd stop supporting them. We'd stop saying, I want to help you. Want to know why I don't want to help you? Because I know exactly why this is happening to you. This was God's decree. This was coming to you. Which means to say sometimes, oftentimes, when we know less, we're inspired to do more. Sometimes when there's a distance, when there's a lack of knowledge, when there's an obscurity, when something's hidden, it gives us a passion to come closer to it, to want to better the world, to want to better our relationship with God. I've, I've, I've more than once said this as well. I'm convinced that the Jewish nation has endured so long specifically, and that's the danger of having it, it's Yisra Medinat Yisrael, because we haven't been in our country. Had we been in one country over the course of even 100 or 200 years, there's a particular danger where there's no yearning, there's no searching, there's no ohel moed outside of the camp, there's no lishana ha-ba'a we're already there. There's a particular danger and difficulty in any relationship when everything's already there. When I have everything, maybe I'm no longer connected to it. Maybe I'm no longer seeking it or searching for it. In other words, this experience of the mishkan, and then all of a sudden there's a little absence from Moshe, from God, so to speak, brings the people to a moment of panic, to which now they learn that there's something healthy about absence. There's something appropriate about not having it all immediately. It not only deepens the relationship, it enhances the relationship. It gives it a certain sense of mystery. I don't know everything any longer, and I can live with that. Not only can I live with it, I now want to know about it. So Moshe's disappearance in the middle is, so to speak, a test. And it's a test that we know they're going to fail. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Uh, it's not only about it's not Israel. All about, meaning it's not all about getting to the land. That's not the end game. Absolutely. The Torah ends without an entrance into Israel. The whole Torah, from beginning until end, was leading us to an entrance to Eretz Canaan, the book. And we do enter Eretz Canaan. Why isn't in Hamisha Homshe Torah? Why couldn't you throw in, five? We, we threw in a few 12 who came after the death of Moshe, write one more, and then they entered into the land of, because the book should not end in such a fashion. It ends us with, well, yearning to get there. I say it all the time about Megillat Esther as well. Megillat Esther doesn't end with a happily ever after. According to the rabbi's vision of it, ultimately speaking, we do make our way back to Israel, but it ends with us in Shushan. It ends with us still searching, still yearning, still seeking, because the moment that it's overly revealed is the moment as well that the relationship becomes cheapened. A hide-and-seek game with God, so to speak, is a necessary one. So God begins us with Ma'amad Har Sinai. We're jolted backward and say we can't see so much. He continues it with a Mishkan, reenactment of Har Sinai, all in your faith. Too much so. It shows this relationship is not deep. I can't handle it. You're away from me for a minute or two, and I, I don't even know how to react. Clearly, this relationship is only about instant gratification, about instant knowledge, 
and capability of, that's not a relationship at all. That's a, you, were you thinking about me? You're only thinking about me because I'm with you. What about when I'm not, so to speak, with you in your face? That's Haita Egel. The, 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 the reaction to that is a redoing of the Mishkan. There's more to it in Parashat Kitisa because Parashat Kitisa ends in a very telling episode. The very end of Parashat Kitisa, this is right before in the chronology of the Torah, the construction of the Mishkan. Listen to page 224. Page 224 is when Moshe is told to write the second Luchot. Uh, so forgiveness for Heta Ego. We're on our way to... Well, moving forward, and it describes how Moshe again goes to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and now he comes down. And what happens when he comes down? Pasuk kaftet, he doesn't realize that his face is beaming, is radiating, which means to say that when everyone looks at Moshe, they see something. So they see something. That's an amazing experience. That's a, You look at Moshe, I mean, you look at the Mishkan, I look at Harsina, I look at Moshe, and I feel sanctity. I look at Moshe and I, so to speak, see, well, Elohecha Yisrael. I'm able to point to him and fit. That's wrong. They're jolted backward. Too much in my face. Too much. They, they notice that Moshe's face is beaming, whatever that means. And they are fearful and move backwards. Sound familiar? That's Har Sinai all over again. That is, I saw too much. I'm now pushed backwards. But this time, we're going to do it right. We're going to build the relationship as such that you don't, you're not always seeing it. Because Moshe now, the Pasuk says, uh, the Pasuk now says, V'acharechen Pasuk Lamidbet, V'ichal Moshe midaber itam, V'yiten al-panav masveh. He places on his face some sort of mask. Literally hide and seek. Moshe now puts a mask on his face. Why are you putting a mask? Because it's inappropriate for you to have an overexposure. It's wrong. Go ahead. I just feel like, okay, Harris and I was doing like, nothing is too little. Moshe's face beaming is still too much. Like, come on. Like, then what's, like, how much light should they get? Like, I feel like also, like, it's not up to them. What if I said it like this? It needs to be a journey to find that light. You can't just have that light. Something along those lines. Bringing it into... Moshe's face is a little bit more indirect, though. It is, but Moshe is the closest to the people's experience of God. Moshe is the one who was at the top of the mountain. Moshe represents for them at this time the representation in this world of God. Uh, obviously he isn't, but I'm saying that's the closest. I think that's the imagery. I think his ohil earlier, it was his tent. It was before the Mishkan. He needs to move his tent out as well. It's the closest you're going to come to connecting with God. It's got to be out of the way. It can't be. But don't we all have that balance in our own yeah, lives? Really don't we do it? Okay. If you said, but I'm sorry. But, but talk even in our relationship sometimes and, and taking for a moment, again, one more time, taking God out of it for a second and think about with your children. You can continuously support your children financially, emotionally, psychologically, in every sense, consistently and constantly, unconditional love, support, and fulfillment of every desire of theirs. 
and it will and does feel fantastic for them. How deep is your relationship with them? Do they truly have a bond to you or are they connected to you because they know there's a constant stream from you to them? The moment you block it is the moment that they initially panic but ultimately speaking, come to appreciate this relationship. Realize that this relationship is consistent of more than just constant and immediate beaming light, right? In other words, I, I think that we experience it with God. I think we experience it with our children if we do it right. I think we even experience it with our, with our spouses. I'm no psychologist, although I was a major in psychology, but I, there was once a, a couple who was, uh, whatever, had a dispute about something and they for some silly reason, came to speak to the rabbi about it. I'm not a psychologist. I didn't have the right, in my opinion, right response or the right angle. My mother's a psychologist. Full, uh, um, no, there was no disclosure of names or any personalities. But I, and I told them. I said, I'm going to discuss it with my mother. And my mother said to me that a relationship needs to be at many points, not at all points, but at many points, like a cat and mouse game. There needs to be, from each spouse, the... The feeling, it sounds inappropriate, but it's true, that I need to get them. I want to, I want, it can't just be, otherwise the, the relationship becomes stale, becomes taken for granted. It's so much so in the relationship with God, the relationship that each of us seek. If every time we pulled up to Uri's, there was that parking spot in front of it, it becomes stale. It's nothing for us, even though I don't think that was God per se, but no, <laughs> separate conversation. <laughs> but. That's in Yitro, yes. Right, so what was the point of that if he knew yeah, you missed two weeks ago, but that's okay. Uh, you missed two weeks ago, but what I can tell you is that's a overemphasis in the Torah of what's going to be an overwhelming event. That's the realization and the description to Moshe and to us, this is going to be an overwhelming event to the extent that you might imagine it's bringing our attention to it. You might imagine they're going to rush forward. They want it so much. And the people instead react by stepping backward because they realize innately, intuitively, this relationship is, is, is not a healthy one. We need to listen. Please, Moshe, you speak to us instead of us seeing it directly. Same thing that's going on again and again throughout this. And I think it's in my, I know it's, it's getting a little repetitive, Yitro, Mishpatim, and Terumah, but I, it's the same sort of message, but I think what the Torah is doing subtly is, this is the beginning of a relationship with the people with God. I mean, these are our first steps in the desert. You're developing a relationship with God. There's going to be a repetitive cycle of moving forward and then jolting backwards. There's going to be an exposure. That is a relationship. Sorry, Serene. Yes. So, if it is, if, according to him, how does he explain the change of the attention of the response? Great question. So, give me a second to articulate your question. First, I'm piecing it all together, and then I'll. I'll struggle with that for a moment. Um, to piece everything together, what we suggested is that Parashat Tiruma introduces us to a Mishkan, which, again, using the imagery of Ramban, just on that one detail, although all the details would suffice for this, would work for this, is the gold of the Mishkan is the fire of Har Sinai. The Mishkan is the miniature Har Sinai. You had such a wonderful experience there. 
Come and look at this and you will feel my presence everywhere. You're going to see this Mishkan in the middle. It's going to be looking at God constantly. That's the Mishkan. Uh, the actual realization of the Mishkan, the end of Parashat Vayakel, anything but that. There's no sight. Uh, there, there's just a cloud which obscures all sight. What happened? Why did that change? And the suggestion we had is that Heta Egel is the best way of depicting to us how absolute tumor much in your face side, how the instant results, which we're so used to in life, in everything but, our, well, even our relationships now, but shouldn't be our relationship. We're used to, uh, whatever. I mean, like, I, I, I think many of us who are from a different generation, like, that my kids have no patience for anything, like the, like, why is there no Wi-Fi here? What? Are you serious? What? Why is there no Wi-Fi? Let's, yeah, yeah. So, uh, my wife showed me that something that uh, was like a, a graphic remembering the olden days and those sounds when you signed up and when you got signed out from the internet. I mean, like, they, no musag. My children would, uh, they, they would not be able to sit through. I'm not, they live in a different channel. There is such instancy. There is such, it's immediate and I can't imagine any, whatever. I mean, when, I like, you know, I like like the book world and things like that or whatever. It used to be, not so, when I was in school, when I was in graduate school, if you needed an article of something, you had to go to the library, you had to find the documents, you had to have them ask for permission to dare I call it Xerox it, it's, it's all on the internet, easily accessible, immediately, which is fantastic, don't get me wrong. I know it takes... The same point, by the way, the exact same point, right? The fact that you had to go down that trail, the fact that you had to journey and search for it, as a result, it became a part of you. Instead of just having it laid out in front of you, no doubt, I'm sure there are tactics and ways to do it differently, but relationships, in my opinion, have increasingly, I imagine, become, I experience it, I see it, I feel it, more about that as well. There's a depth which is lost in relationships, and we're all guilty of it because it's the world we live in. I think the Torah is increasingly telling, not increasingly, um, what's it called, repetitively telling us again and again and again, if you're searching for a depth in relationship, even though it could all be exposed, even though you could have it all in front of you, don't let that be the reality. Don't live it like that. Don't live it like that with one another, and you'll never live it like that with God. Heta Egel is what depicts that. Heta Egel is what, wait a second, since I was dependent upon that, disappearance is not a mystery, which I'm excited about. Disappearance is panic time. Moshe moving his ohel could be the worst, the best thing that happened. Now you have to search for privacy. it. Moshe, privacy. You might even, you might even, I'm okay with this. This is perhaps an angle on why the rabbis talk about siniut. Leave clothing aside, leave language aside. Talk about the concept of siniut to keep relationships um, as a matter of depth. It's to, to make certain that I am a person who's engaging in a relationship with you. I'm not just giving to you, I'm engaging with you. I, I really believe that that's at its core. So basically what Serene just asked though is that this is all reading the parashot chronologically, saying this was the first description of the Mishkan, that's the final analysis of what happens, and in the middle was Chet Egel. that reads very nicely 
for Ramban, which who reads this all chronologically, if for Rashi, it all happens afterwards, if for Rashi, so then what was the command initially and why a different um, appearance? I'm not 100% certain. What I would suggest, though, is that even for Rashi, don't give me the R's, I don't know everything. Um, even for Rashi, even for Rashi, that chronologically it happens later, the Torah, he has to explain why the Torah sets it up like this. So I believe he would say the Torah almost poetically, the Torah almost in, in a way that it's teaching you a lesson, tells, quote, a different story than what actually happened to get across this point, to teach you this lesson, to describe this is how it was, and this is how it ends up. I, you know, to bring you back to, and we do it all the time, but it's worth doing again, to bring you back to Gan Eden, it was a life in which everything was provided, in which everything was apparent, and they want out. And they want out, and therefore they have no access any longer to that Eitzah Hayim. It's not what the Torah says. The Torah says, ironically, the same words in this week, Parasha, that Kiruvim, these cherubs are left guarding Derech Etz Hayim. They guard the pathway to that Etz Hayim, which means to say it's not that you're not going to tap into whatever the source of life is, your relationship with God, your understanding and connectedness. To him. That's not what's lost. What's lost is the immediacy. What's lost is, well, I need to see God and I'm going to see him right now. Instead, now there's a Derech. Now there's a path. Now there's a passageway which I'm going to have to walk along. And that's what I needed all along. You set me up by placing me in this boring place where I just hear you and see you all the time. I needed that challenge for self-development and development in a relationship with you. I need to be listening for you, as the Pesukim described, walking in the Gan, the Adam and Chava experience. I think it's very much the case over here. Sorry, Sri, you want to say something else? True. Uh, so much. So what Serene's saying is, if you recall, I said ve'asuli mikdash v'shachanti betocham, which is said at the beginning of this week's parasha, which is a description of. I said God is manifested everywhere. I said that's kind of lost in the construction of the Mishkan. Instead, the kivod Adonai, the honor and glory of God, is in the Mishkan, Maleta Mishkan. I'll state it differently. What about all the synagogues that have that pasuk on the wall? Like, what happened to that? Yeah, so I think it's, I think instead of it becoming a reality, it becomes a goal. Instead of it becoming, this is what I live with constantly, it becomes, this is what I'm striving for. Who's not striving for a relationship in which God is revealed at all times? You say, then it becomes stale. Okay, but give me the experience. I mean, it's still something we want. We still want to bask in the light of God as much as we realize it's unhealthy when it endures too long. We certainly have the Vasuli Mikdash as well, for sure. For sure. For sure. So much so, by the way, just to, to bring this all together as well, is that the Mishkan, as described in our Torah, is something that we built. I mean, that's, that's noteworthy as well. We built the sanctuary to the extent that this was something we were inviting God into. We were constructing. So in other words, even from the beginning, there was an aspect of your involvement, but at a certain point, it was just going to be in front of you. That should be mentioned as well in context of, well, what was going to take place? This was going to be reciprocal. But if it actually went about in such a fashion, that reciprocity is lost. The moment we struck the relationship, God, you appeared, uh, what now? There's nothing striving for at this point. Comment? Question? Uh, question. Yes, go ahead. You mentioned at the beginning about Queen. Yes. And 
when we talk about Purim, usually we discuss when when we discuss Purim, the beginning is usually what we see and all the gaudiness and you know the sure. images. But we say that it's because I mean, what is this connection to the Mishkan? Like you said that in the beginning. Yeah. I know that I learned from, from the rabbi from you that he's married to the princess and it seems like there's no death to their right so Ahasuerus's kingdom because of her very clearly through and through for one reason or another has zero depth Correct. it is a so kingdom built on law with, that's why I, that's why I mentioned it in context. Not that it had zero depth, but it had the trappings. It had the trappings of being caught up in the vision instead of in the underlying meaning and relationship. That was what I was suggesting. Yeah, yeah. That's why I. That's why I compared it to the. So and 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 Megillat Esther has a lot of noticing similarities. It's noticing similarities, but again, it's being stuck in just the vision. It's losing lo- losing sight of relationship which, by the way, Esther breaks. Right. Esther is the one who brings forth Ahava. The Pasuk says that Ahashverosh loves her. We weren't expecting that. Women were uh, objects. He falls in love with her, which is not what we expected. That's not the type of person he was, not the type of kingdom he had built, as per the description. The kingdom was one which was superficial. It was just all about the physical and the appearance. She turns something. So in short... I mean, she does. She 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 very clearly does. And there's a lot of a lot of you know a lot of hidden things in there as well. No no no. In Megillat Esther, the pasuk says, He loves her. That's an amazing thing. You were not expecting that. You were not. And by the way, and I'll conclude with this just to bring it to Megillat Esther. Part of how Esther does it. Part of it is the mystery of Esther. Who yes, is Esther? Where does she come from? Anything. Right. So people imagine it's all because of anti-Semitism. I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there are different interpretations. At its core, it might just be he's curious to find out who she is. Right? It, it leaves. Make sense. He's the king of all. Every person at their core, in their essence, needs a relationship. So as much as Ahasuerus was living a life of zero relationship, of woman in and woman out, and then wait in my harlot house, he too, at a certain moment when he couldn't and didn't understand this woman, fell in love with her, maybe because of the mystique, because he felt a certain aspect of depth, because it wasn't revealed to him immediately. I believe the lesson, again, of Terumah, Tetzaveh, Kitisah, Vayakel, Pikudeh, is this continued lesson to each of us in striving for depth in our relationships, realizing it's not something to be sorrowful and sad about when there isn't full revelation, when we don't have a constant contact, when the internet is not accessible at all times. It's instead a cause not to celebrate per se, but to appreciate and to realize that is what builds in our relationships a certain sense of depth with one another, with ourselves, and with God as well. That's it.